Hey, um, we're going to be doing something just a little bit different. Um, many of you guys know this. We've talked about it here for just a little while. Um, but we're going to be taking a season here to kind of look at the core values, the mission, and the calling, not just for the church globally, but for this church specifically. So for the next couple of weeks, this is going to be a little bit different than what we would normally do. Um, and we're going to just, it's just good for us to be able to rally around um, the things that we're going to talk about today and just kind of define clear lanes. So um, we're going to open up in prayer. I'm going to read Acts chapter 1, and we're going to open up in prayer. We need it, especially this kind of thing is way outside my comfort zone. I'm not a topical kind of teacher. I'm more of a let's go through the scriptures. Um, and currently, we are in the book of 2 Corinthians, and we will be going right back to that. We have not bailed on anything. We're just going to take a few weeks here. It's kind of, even though it's the fall and towards the end of the calendar year, um, the fall tends to mark sort of the beginning of the, the calendar year for the church. Everybody's been on vacation, all the summer camps are over, and it sort of starts over, if you will, in September. And so we're just going to take a few weeks to kind of revisit some of our history, but, but more importantly, what God has called us to in this particular body of believers here together. So um, what we're going to do is we're going to read this, we're going to pray, and then we're going to dive right in, all right? So looking at Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 6. And so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will at this time, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go to heaven." Let's pray. Lord, we just ask that your grace and mercy would be upon us, Lord. We ask, God, that your spirit would be alive and present and moving throughout this room. I pray, God, that you would just use the very words of my mouth, that you would guide the words of my mouth, and that, Lord, your heart for your church would be made evident. I pray, God, that people would be encouraged, motivated to rally around what you have called us to do, to be on board with your mission and your kingdom in this world. And I pray, God, that you, your church would be edified, but more than anything, that you would be exalted on high and lifted up, that you would be made known in this church and in this valley as you are in heaven. So we bow before you, Lord, humbly, ask that you would teach us this morning. And I pray, God, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, my King and my Redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Let me ask you, what do you like about heritage? And I mean, like if you were talking to a friend in this valley, we have a lot of churches in this valley. One thing that is really amazing about this particular valley as opposed to, well, anywhere, especially in Oregon, is that this valley is full of great Bible-teaching churches, churches with good doctrine and great hearts and great teachers. It's really a rare enigma what goes on in this particular valley compared to most places in the U.S., but especially in Oregon. Oregon is considered the least church state in the United States. 
But yet here in Medford, there's like this pocket. It's actually, we have more in common here in Medford with the Bible Belt than we do the rest of the Pacific Northwest. There's a lot of different churches here. And so if you're in conversation with people around the valley, if you're talking with your friends, if you're inviting someone to church, what is it that you tell them about your church to bring them, to say, hey, you should come to church with us. Man, there's a great teaching there. Or you should come to church with us. Man, the music's awesome. Or you could come to church as really good people. They're so nice people. Or come to church. It's close by. <laughs> I mean, what is it that you would go to? What is the thing that you would point to to say, this is the reason that you should come to church? Well, those are all good things, and there's a lot of good reasons that we could point out. God's doing an amazing work here, and there's a lot of good things that God is doing within this church. But it also is good for us to keep, maybe even in the back of our mind as we're having conversations like that with people from time to time, it's good for us to remember something. And you guys know this, but the church is not a consumable product. You know that? Like, the church is not like a restaurant. Like when we go to restaurants, we're like, man, you should come with us to this restaurant. It's awesome. Flat screens everywhere. The food's no good, but the environment's amazing. Or get, come to church with us, it's, or come to this restaurant with us, man. The, the food is so good. It's a quaint little place, and you're going to like this. Or I, I don't go to that restaurant anymore, man. The service there is terrible. We waited 20 minutes just to get water last time we were here, and it just wasn't, you know, there's a lot of things we might point out when we're dealing with more of a commercial enterprise or a business or a consumable product, um, but that's not what the church is. The church isn't a restaurant. The church of Jesus Christ is a group of people that have not arrived, that don't exist, but that have been sent by Jesus Christ on a specific mission. The church is in motion, the church has direction, and the church is called by God for a purpose, not to draw unto itself, but to spread out and infect the world around it. That's the purpose of the church. Were it not for that purpose, then Jesus would be, we'd be in heaven with him already. But we're here, in mission, on mission for Christ. That's what we see in Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1, you got, you got to know the backstory, you know, all of you do, I'm sure, but Jesus has just risen from the dead. I mean, all those like, is he the Messiah? Is he not the Messiah? I think he's the Messiah. Those questions for his followers are forever gone. The people that are gathered together in this story in Acts chapter 1 are the people that will give their lives now to spread the good news of the reality of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. They've just seen this happen. And they've spent time with him. They've been walking with him and learning from him. And he's pouring his final instruction into the church. And he gathers them all together on this hill. And he gives them this incredible mission. Now think about this. These are just, they're fishermen, tax collectors, normal guys. They are not in power in Jerusalem. They're not people of influence or people of means or resources. Just guys. And he pulls them together on the hill. And now they've been expecting that Jesus one day is going to come and he's going to overturn the powers that be there. He's going to liberate Israel from the oppression of Rome. He's going to set up the kingdom of Israel the way it was always intended to be, like the days of its glory under David and Solomon, but oh, so much better because this is the Messiah we've been waiting for thousands of years for. He's here. And so they're like, all right, Jesus, you did the suffering part. You told us about that. We didn't understand it, but we've seen it now. And then you've risen from the dead. You're alive. It, that part's over. So is it time now? Is it kingdom time now? 
Is this the time when we storm into Jerusalem? When you ascend to your throne where we rule and reign with you and, and just it's glory days from here on out? Is it now? And Jesus says to him, no, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons when that kingdom's coming. But here's what I want you to know. You're going to receive power. My Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and you will be my witnesses throughout the entire world. And then he leaves. <laughs> I mean, imagine that. He gives the great, the, the, the great commission to this group of people. This is what you're going to do. The Holy Spirit's going to come, and you're going to witness to me throughout the entire world. All right, I'm out. And then he's gone, and just, he just leaves them. He just leaves them. No, here's your fleet of vehicles. This is how you're going to do this. No, no, here's the radio stations that are going to trans, carry the message all over the place. Just this is what you're going to do. The Holy Spirit's coming, and then he leaves. Well, it's understandable they'd be standing around, right? Um, what? And then he's gone? And they're standing there, looking up at the sky. Like, oh, what do we do? What do we do now? And these angels appear. Men of Jerusalem, why, why are you standing here? He's coming back. He said he would. He'll be here. Go. <laughs> he gave you a mission. He gave you a calling. The world's big. You might want to get started. And, and this is how it begins. And the book of Acts, from Acts chapter 1 to Acts chapter 28, is the story of the beginning of the mission of God. We refer to it as the church, but it's really much more than that. The church is the vessel by which God accomplishes his mission. The story of Acts is the mission. The establishment of this kingdom outpost, the spread of the gospel throughout the world, the calling together of people to redemption and salvation and to this new kingdom program. Started in Acts chapter 1, and it continues on even to this day. See, we are the continuation of this story. Like I was saying at the very beginning, when we get together here on a Sunday, this isn't just something that we do. This is part of the continuing promise of God. The thing that Jesus said he would do 2,000 years ago, he would build his church and he would use this church to spread his name throughout the world. We are not a club. We are on mission for the kingdom of God. And so when we're thinking about, like, so what about our church? If you, people were to say, what is it about heritage that makes you go there? Or why should you go to this church? Or what should we as a church do? Maybe one of the first things we should think about before we get into what's worship like? Or what's this like? Or what's that like? Maybe a more important question is to say, how does this church fit into the global mission and plan of God that has existed for 2,000 years? What is the plan? What's the purpose of this church, and how does it fit into this ongoing mission? That was a big question for me. So we started this church in 2008, and one year previously, I was in Africa with Pastor Jim Wright from Mountain, and we were teaching, and also Eric Melgren, who's here with us, was there with us, and the three of us were teaching at a large pastor's conference, some 450 pastors from all over Uganda and Rwanda were all gathered there, and we were teaching through the book of Romans, teaching these guys just verse by verse through the scriptures. And as we did that, and my time spent there with Jim Wright at the time, he was the senior pastor, I was his assistant pastor at the time, when we finished having worked through that book, taking one guy takes this chapter, the next guy takes that, we worked through the whole thing for three or four days, and when it was over, Jim Wright pulled me aside, we got back to the States, I remember we went up to his house, and we were having lunch out on this patio, and he said, Jeff, here, here's what I know, man, I, my time with you is limited. 
And so it's time to start thinking and praying. And what I want to do is I want to encourage you, when, when it's time for you to go and, and start a church that you're going to lead on your own like that, um, I want to encourage you to do it locally. And that's a huge thing. That's a huge move. You don't see that very often. I applaud Jim for that. I'm thankful for him. I didn't have to move. That's awesome. I mean, to be able to stay and serve among the people that I love. Some of you guys, I've been tracking with for years. Some of you, this is the third church you've been with me at. And so to be able to, to go and start and plant a church amongst the people that I already love and have relationships, it was, a, it was an incredible opportunity. It was a rare one. Um, and a lot of times churches are more like, yes, we want to start another church, but you've got to go a long ways away because we also become protective over our congregations. And there, there's a place for that's okay. I mean, I would hope every pastor has a heart for his people. But, but Jim says to me, all right, I'm going to encourage you to do this locally. And so it, over the next months, the way things transpired through praying and planning and thinking, talking with others, getting counsel, we ended up planning the church. We started it more in Central Point. We're still sort of on this side of town. But, but there was a huge question for me in that. Because like I said, we, here we are in this valley with churches all over the place. There's tons of churches that are great Bible teaching churches. And so I remember just going, Lord, and talking to other people, talking to my wife, like, okay, this is great. It's an awesome opportunity to start a church here in town. We don't have to move. But at the same time, like, what's the point of that? Like, if we're just going to go be another church, why? Why separate relationships as people maybe leave the other church to come to this one? Why separate budgets? Why, ha why have double the admin costs now between two other churches? Why, why do all of that? What, doesn't it seem like if we were just going to do that, might as well just stay all in one church, consolidate resources and finances and all that, and just keep spreading the gospel here in the valley? Why start a whole other church if that's what we're going to do, is just kind of do the thing that we've always known and done? It was a heavy question for me. But what has transpired since then is that God has assembled a congregation here at Heritage with a unique and specific DNA, with a specific calling that's different. Not better, but different. It has a different heart, different focuses, different outreaches, different personalities, a different DNA than many, many churches throughout the valley. It's very different. And so what we're going to be doing now, for just for the next couple of weeks, a really short series here. And again, I'm not a series guy, so be praying for me. This is way outside my comfort zone. But we're going to just spend some time walking through what the core values and mission is of Heritage Christian Fellowship. The thing that does define us. The boundaries by which we make decisions. That we decide where are we going to spend budget money? Where are we going to send people? What ministries do we want to take on? What is the calling that God has for us as a people? And kind of rally around a specific vision. For after all, the scriptures does say that without vision the people perish. And so it's a good thing once in a while to come together and remember what the point of all of this is. And so that's what we're going to do. And so why is that beneficial? Why is that worth taking up some time on Sunday mornings to kind of go through this stuff? Wouldn't we be better just sticking to the Word? Well, we're going to be in the Word. Make no mistake about it. But there are some really specific benefits to this. So we started working on this as a staff several months ago, and then we spent some time, our leadership team and uh, the elders, talking through some of these things. And in every case, as I've talked through these things with them, everyone's come back and said, man, this is just really helpful. This just really helps define 
lanes and clarify things. And so all of them have been encouraging. We need to do this with the body. We need to do this with the church collectively. And I'm like, oh, I don't like series. I don't know. No, this would be a really good thing. And as I've been thinking this through and kind of studying some of this and talking to some other people, there are some real benefits to us just spending a little window of time doing this. Um, One of them, first of all, it creates unity within the body. Uh, understanding what our mission and our values are collectively as a group creates unity in the body. People tend to cheer for one another and encourage one another more and compete with one another less when they realize they're on the same team heading in the same direction. I've done this in marriage counseling many times. There's been times when I've had couples come in and meet with me before and they're sitting there and just the two are not seeing eye to eye. And so there's a lot of times that I go, okay, hold on, hold on, time out. I just want to ask you just a basic question. I might turn to the wife and say, just tell me, forget everything that's going on right now. What do you want out of life? Like, what is it that you're looking for? What is it that your soul desires? What is it you're looking for in your marriage, in your family, just in your life in general? And inevitably, I mean, the, the, the answers can be, can be various, but inevitably they say things like, um, I want peace. I want some joy out of life. I want some sense of purpose. Um, we all want some sort of sense of security, uh, maybe the ability to provide or, or be able to provide for our family, whatever the case may be. And they'll list off maybe some things that are important to them. And then invariably, I'll turn to the husband. How about you? What do you want out of life? What are the things that you're looking for? And invariably, they end up saying the exact same things. I want peace. I want, I want some comfort. I want a sanctuary at home. I want camaraderie with my spouse. I mean, they, they always end up saying the same things. Now, they might be miles apart in how to get at what they want. I want peace, and here's how we get it. And the others go, I want peace, but it's this way. You know what I mean? You could be miles apart in how to get there. But sometimes just establishing, establishing that base foundation that says, look, we are on the same team. We're after the same things. We have the same mission, the same goals, the same purpose in life. It establishes a foundation that you can go, okay, we both want, we disagree on how to get there, but we want the same things. Maybe we can just start to hear one another out and start trusting one another's heart a little bit better. And so understanding for us as a church, what are the values of Heritage Christian Fellowship? What is the mission of Heritage Christian Fellowship? Creates that kind of unity, that this is where we're going and we're going together. And I don't have to fight for my little niche because we as a body are serving Lord and going in this particular direction. So it creates unity within the body. Number two, it provides clarity. Understanding the mission and the values of our church provides clarity. When the vision is clear, yes and no are clear. When the vision is clear, doing this or not doing this become a lot easier. So should we do this? Should we take this ministry on? Well, let's see. What is our mission? What do we value? And how does this ministry fit into what we have been called by God to do? And if it does, awesome. If it doesn't, it's just not our thing. doesn't mean it's bad. It's just not what God has called us to do. What about staffing? Who should we hire? Where should we go? What ministry should we take on? Where should we spend money? All of those things, you get a framework by which that you can make those sorts of decisions when your vision, your destination, the direction that you're going, and the things that you value have been clearly defined and understood. And then the final thing is this, is it encourages momentum. When vision is clear, you know what to celebrate. 
When vision is clear, we understand the value of our roles. When vision is clear, we simply know what we're aiming for, and we're not content anymore just to sit and wait for something to come to us. We have a destination. We know where we're going. I I used to love to go fishing out on the lake. And I, I love lake fishing. I still do it from time to time, but, but I've gotten rid of my lake boat and got a drift boat now. And so when you get on the river, it's different. There's a beginning and an end. And my wife's like, I love that. I don't like going with you up in the lake. We're up here like, where are we going? I don't know. This spot, when are we getting out of here? No clue. It's just sort of meander all around the lake. My wife's like, I love getting on the river. Here's where we are. Here's where we get out. I have a start and a finish. I know how to plan my day. And there's reality to that for us as well. Because like I said, we're not a consumable product. We've been called on mission for God. So we should as a church be going somewhere. And so understanding our mission and values clarifies, if you will, the bullseye that we're shooting for. Okay, so if that's the benefits of it, then what drives heritage? What is it about heritage in particular that drives? This is the question that we're going to be seeking to answer over the next couple of weeks. If we were running a business, then our goals might be based on something like, our, our, what drives us might be the goals at the end. So for example, we might say, um, we are motivated by profit, or we are motivated by getting our name out there, product recognition, or growth, or number of franchises. And so that's the thing that determines everything that we go. But we know for a fact, the church is not a business. Amen? The church is not a business. Uh, Everything about the kingdom of God in Jesus' teaching is the exact reverse of everything that we see going on out there. He says, if you want to be great, you be small. If you want to be great, you're the servant, not some dictator. So we got to understand right away, things are going to be a little bit reverse engineered in that way. And the thing that drives heritage, the the mission of not just heritage, but of the church in general, the mission of the church is not about so much what we want, but we start always with what we know, with our doctrine. We start our mission based off of the idea of what we know about God. That drives everything that we do. So consider with me, you guys know this story really well. Jesus is with his apostle Peter. And here he is and he says to Peter, Peter, who do people say that I am? And there's a a bevy of answers that come back. Well, some people say you're this guy. Some people say you're dead, come back to life. You're John the Baptist, you're you're Moses, you're Elijah. He goes through all this stuff. And then Jesus goes, oh, Peter, Peter, hold on. But who do you say that I am? What do you know about me? And Peter responds, that famous answer. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the most high God. And what's Jesus' response to that? He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. You will be Peter. You're gonna be the rock now. And he says, God God has revealed this to you. You didn't come up with this on your own, which we all knew. No way Peter did that on his own. God gave that to him. but, But here's what he says. He says, upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, I know that our Catholic friends would say, that means Peter, he was the first pope, that's the rock. But, but that's not actually a, a really good handling of the scripture. When you understand the context and the language, what he says, he's not talking about this guy, Peter, he's talking about this truth, this idea, the thing that Peter had just said, that you are the Christ, the son of the most high God. On that foundation, I will build my church, and the very gates of hell will not prevail against that. The church is built on what we know about God, whether you use the words doctrine, statement of faith, our theology. Everything that a church does must be driven by what we know about God. 
So things like we know that there is a God, one and only God. He exists three in one, the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He is the creator of all. He's the ancient of days. He existed before there was time. He spoke everything into existence. He has revealed himself to us through his word. And through the Bible, through his scriptures, we not only come to an understanding of who he is, but what his plan and mission of redemption is throughout the span of time. These doctrines, the idea of baptism, the idea of communion, you might refer to them as just general evangelical adopted truths. These are statement of faith, basic Christian doctrine. We're not talking about getting into some of the the incidentals or, or some of those kind of things. We're talking about bedrock doctrine that apart from these beliefs, you're just not saved. You're not even a believer. But that only helps us so much in defining who we are and where God has us going as a church. Because as I said, these are basic beliefs that are adopted by really the evangelical kingdom worldwide. But within that evangelical kingdom, there is all sorts of churches, right? All sorts of flavors, all sorts of callings, all sorts of missions. Man, I have been a part of Baptist churches. I've been a part of non-denominational churches. I've been a part of Lutheran churches. And I got drugged with grandma to church or to the Candler House of Prayer. And I'm telling you right now, they come in with tambourines, you know what I mean, that kind of church. Dance, you might jog around the sanctuary a couple times before you come out. I mean, if we handed that church our basic doctrine, this is what we believe about God, apart from maybe some nuances here and there, they would probably say, ah, we agree with all that too. So, so just that basic statement of faith doesn't go so far to actually determine the specific role of heritage, the specific calling for our church and what God has us to do moving forward. So what specific role is heritage to play in light of what we know? What does our doctrine drive for us? And this is what we're gonna be spending the bulk of our time over the next couple of weeks talking about. We're gonna talk about it within the framework of core values. What are the core beliefs that we hold to as a church that we feel strong convictions about that guide and determine what it is we do and take on as a church here in the valley, here within our church, and throughout the world? And really, our core values are kind of summarized by the mission statement of Heritage Christian Fellowship. The mission statement of Heritage Christian Fellowship is simply this, that Heritage Christian Fellowship exists to exalt the Lord to equip his saints, and to engage the world around us with the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is, if you could summarize one succinct, what is heritage about? We exist to exalt the Lord, to equip the saints, and to engage the world around us with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the three E's. You're going to hear them over and over and over. They're not three made-up E's. This isn't just like, this is what we want to do. But this is what we see as our calling biblically for our church, that we are to exalt the Lord, equip the saints, and evangelize and engage the world around us. And so really to make sense of all of this, what we're going to be doing is spending the bulk of our time breaking each one of those down. What does it mean to exalt the Lord? These are referred to as our core values. What does it mean to exalt the Lord? What does it mean to equip the saints? What does it mean to engage the world around us? And the best way to really make sense of all of this is just to dive right in and start looking at the first of those three. And we're going to spend the rest of our time here today looking at this idea of exalt exalting the Lord. So core value number one or category number one would be exalting the Lord. And for that, I want you to look at 1 Peter chapter 2. 
verses 1 through 6. If you could turn there, 1 Peter chapter 2, I think we have a graphic for it that we'll put up as well. 1 Peter chapter 2. Beginning in verse 1. He says this. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And just for the sake of time, skip to verse 9. It says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now I want you to think about something for me. Let's, let's give some framework to the words that Peter's saying here in 1 Peter chapter 2. Before Jesus, worship, this is another word for exalt. Before Jesus, worship was confined to a specific place. You would come to the temple to offer your sacrifices and to be able to worship God. Before Jesus, worship was confined to certain times. There were prescribed sacrificial systems that you offer this here and you go to this ceremony or this festival here. You offer it this time of day. You do. It was very prescribed and very rigid within the timeline. It was only done by certain men. It was mediated by these certain priests and only they could be the ones to accept and manage or handle, if you will, your sacrifices as you came to temple. And anything that was out of the line, anything that was outside of that prescribed pattern for worship would be rejected. So it's for Jewish people. If you're not a Jew, where do you go? Or, or if, you, if you couldn't come to the temple, how do you handle that? I mean, there was a lot of complications with this. And as Israel grew, and as you go through Israel's history, even just reading through the scriptures, you see this became sort of a bone of contention between Israel and everyone else. On Israel's end, it fostered pride. We're the chosen people. We have Jerusalem. We have the temple. We are the ones who sacrifice to God. And they became arrogant and prideful. And they kind of sat back on their heels like, aren't we the favorites? Instead of understanding that God gives favor so that it can be bl uh, produce blessing throughout the world. So they kind of played favorite. We'll sit back. Look how amazing we are. But for people that are outside of Israel, it fostered a lot of contention. So you get the story in John chapter 4. I had mentioned we were going to go there, but just hang with me. In John chapter 4, the famous story of the woman at the well. Jesus comes to Samaria. It's a place that is not kosher, if we can use that phrase. The Samarian people were considered, Samaritan people were considered um, half-breeds, mongrels, dogs. They were considered almost subhuman. The Jewish people wanted nothing to do with them. And there's a lot of reasons in history behind that, but there was major contention between the two of them. 
And yet Jesus finds himself in Samaria. He's there at the well. And here's this woman there. And, and Jesus comes to her and begins to engage her. He says, hey, will you get me some water? And he begins to talk with her. You know how the story plays out. He, he says, go get your husband. And she says, I don't, I don't have a, a husband. He goes, yeah, you actually have had five, right? And the one you're with right now, you're not actually married to. And, and, and she feels condemned. Here's this Jewish guy pointing out her sin, pointing out her failure, pointing out her errors. And the immediate thing that she jumps to, once that, that flesh has been pricked, if you will, is right into the worship argument. Right after he points that out, she goes, well, okay, Rabbi, you say, the Jewish people, that we should worship in Jerusalem. Our leaders say that we should work, worship on this mountain over here. What do you say? And Jesus' response to her is massive. He says this, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. He says the hour is coming and it is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Now take that story and take what Peter is telling us in 1 Peter chapter 2 and understand what's happening. Before Jesus, worship was all about a place. And it was prescribed and certain people and all these things. And then because of Jesus, everything changes. And he says, now I am calling together not a building, but you guys are now the bricks of the building. You guys are now the building, if you will. That's why even when Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the most high king, Jesus says, upon this rock I will build my church. And for us, church, we go straight into a building where everyone comes together. But the word church, really, ecclesia, really means gathering, his congregation. I'm gathering together a people that will worship me. Not a place, not a prescribed format, not, not any of those things. I am gathering together a people that will worship me in spirit and in truth. A people who, as Second Peter or 1 Peter 2 says, who will proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us. This is what it means to be the church. Upon this rock I will build my church. I am gathering a group of people who will exalt me. That's the calling of the church. The primary purpose and function is that it exalts, it lifts up the name of God. It, it builds up and points the world to Jesus. And so this idea of exalt is everything. I, we talked a couple of weeks ago about the Westminster Catechism. Just again, curiosity. How many of you grew up in churches that did catechisms? Raise your hand. Yeah, quite a few. It, catechism is kind of a, um, it's an, uh, um, a more denominational thing. And what it really means is a catechism was a question and answer. Um, let's just call it a curriculum, if you will that used questions and answers to teach the basics of the Christian faith. So someone that gets brand new, they just get saved, and they come into, for example, I think a lot of Presbyterian churches do catechism. And so someone gets saved, they're in the Presbyterian church, then they can go through these catechisms and it teaches them. It's, it's the discipleship program to teach people about what it looks like, what it means to follow Christ and who he is. Maybe the most famous one or one of them for sure is the Westminster Catechism. And the Westminster Catechism, the very first question says this, what is the chief end of man? In other words, what is the ultimate purpose of man? Out of all the things man can do, 
And out of all the things God might call man to do, what's the single most important thing that all men are called to do? And the answer is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. To glorify God, to exalt God, to worship God. We read Psalm 99 at the beginning of service today. There are calls throughout the scriptures, exalt the Lord your God. Um, Psalm 34, 3, oh magnify the Lord with me. Come, let us exalt his name, what? Together. When God builds his church, he is calling together an assembly of people who will exalt the name of the Lord. The chief end of Heritage Christian Fellowship is to exalt the Lord. Our primary purpose is not to build heritage. Like, look how we've built heritage up. Everybody knows about heritage. No, no, no. Look how Pastor Jeff's got a podcast now. Two people download it. I don't know, what three maybe. But I mean, it's not about building my name. It's not about building the church's name. The chief end, the chief purpose of every church is to exalt the name of God and to make much of his name, to spread his name throughout the people. We exist to exalt the Lord. Amen? You with me on that? This is Scripture. This is not, not Jeff making this up. This is the call in Scripture to exalt the name of the Lord. That's a broad category. Okay, so, so if this is what we're called to do, then let's make it personal here at Heritage. We're talking about core values here, right? So, so what does that mean here? How does the call to exalt the Lord shape what we do here at Heritage and frame the mission of Heritage Christian Fellowship? And this is where we're going to be spending our time. This is what I'm, when I talk about core values, these bullet point things we're talking about, this is what they are. These are things that we, as the leaders of Heritage, and we want you as the people of Heritage, these are the things that frame every decision that we make here at Heritage Christian Fellowship. And so for Exalt today, we have three of them. The first one is this, that Heritage is a gospel-centered church. Now, on the surface, you could go, well, duh. I mean, isn't every church a gospel-centered church? No, no. Now, you can have a whole lot of churches that proclaim the gospel. I hope that every church does. But I can tell you right now, I have been to and been part of churches that might proclaim the gospel, but I can't say that everything they do and everything they teach is centered on or rooted in the gospel. And this is what I mean by that. The understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ changes everything that we as believers do. I mean, even if you go back to the old sacrificial system, the purpose of going to the temple and offering these sacrifices, worshiping in this way, was always what? It was always to atone for our sins and to make sure that we are in good standing with God. And so we've sinned, we've blown it, we're unclean, we're unable to worship. So we'll go through this particular ceremony, we'll offer this sacrifice, we'll cleanse ourselves in these ways. Therefore, God will be pleased with us. And we can be restored back into fellowship with him and everything's good. And then when we sin, we'll offer another burnt offering. And that was kind of the whole program. But that's not what the gospel teaches. The gospel puts an end to earning. It kills it forever. Because the gospel says, not, not while you were clean, but while you were filthiest. While you were sinners. As Romans 5 says, as we were enemies with God that God came, that God showed and demonstrated his love. 
And that he came not while we were knocking it out of the park on a Sunday afternoon, but when we were in the depths of our own depravity that God came, he incarnated himself into the world. He lived the perfect life that you and I could never possibly live. He went to the cross obedient. And on the cross, all the guilt, all the blame, all the wrath of God towards our sin and failures was poured out completely on the person of Jesus Christ. And he died. But he rose again and he defeated sin. He defeated death. He conquered all of those failures. He, as we saw in the story, has now ascended into heaven where he's at the right hand of God the Father. And the message of the gospel now is that for those who would believe and put their faith in him, you are forgiven. Not because you've earned it. You can't earn it. That's the whole point. The whole point was Jesus had to come because if he doesn't, you have no shot whatsoever. And he says that he has demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is what this means. What it means is you already have God's favor, all of it. There's people that we, we need to pray that God will give us his favor. The gospel says he has given you his favor. He has given you his son. What more could he give? He delights in you. He's not waiting for you. Man, if you knock it out of the park in your AM devotions every day this week, then we're good. He delights in you in the midst of your failure. The scripture says he has pity on us. He understands. Like a father pities a child. He knows our frames that we're yet dust, but he loves us. And we never have to be in a place where we worry or wonder about what God thinks of us. That's the point of Romans 5. God has demonstrated his love for us in this. You never have to wonder about his approval. And so this is where this comes into exalt. The idea that the church exalts or us being a gospel-centered church and why that would be under the category of exalt is this. Because everything we do then is an act of worship to the God who has bestowed such favor on us. It's like my wife. I want to serve my wife. I want to love my wife. When Christmas comes, I want to give her gifts. I want to do things for my wife. But I'm not doing those things to get her to love me. I'm doing those things because she already loves me and because I love her. I'm not trying to earn her favor. She gave it to me once and for all when we stood before a congregation in St. Peter's Lutheran Church 18 years ago here in Medford, Oregon. And so now my service to her is in response to the fact that my wife loves me and she accepts me and she understands my failures better than any of you guys do and yet loves me still. And that's just a snippet. That, that's just a dusting, if you will, to the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That he loves you. That he adores, he, he delights. The very sound of your name produces a dance in his heart. He loves you. So the gospel means an end to earning, but not an end to effort. It just redirects it. So we want to go and serve. We want to go and worship. But we're doing it not to get God to like, look at me, God, I'm singing with my hands up. Are you pleased? It's, it's not that at all. It's you are so good because he's already given us his, fa uh, his favor and his unending love. 
Are you guys, this is important. This is really important. And so when we say that Heritage desires to be a gospel-centered church, what we mean is we want everything we do to be birthed out of the reality that Jesus Christ has come and died for our sins and forgiven us. And that means everything that we do from that point on becomes worship. Amen? Which leads us into point number two, that Heritage is a church that seeks to worship authentically. And this is what I mean by that. This is done in two ways. In that story in John chapter 4 with the woman at the well, Jesus says, God is looking for people who will worship him in what ways? In spirit and in truth. Okay, so let's think about those two. It's and. It's not like spirit or truth. It's and. Okay, so let's think about those. In spirit, for example. Spirit, that's speaking about our innermost being. Um, Another way of saying this might be infused hearts. So he's saying, God is looking for a people that will worship him from their innermost being, from your infused hearts, from emotion. And so here at Heritage, for example, we sing. And you go, well, that's just what you've chosen. I choose not to. You should read your Bible more. Because God delights in the praises and songs of his people. And he commands them. And this is one of those words that tends to rub men more than women. It's just the reality of it. In our culture, in America in particular, in our culture, we're guys. Uh, Alistair Begg says American men are change jinglers. Put your hands in your pockets and just jingle your change while the music's going. But, but we have that culture where for men, it's like it's this independent, put on this strength. We don't show emotion. We, we, this is what we do. And so to come into, for some men, it becomes a really difficult, and just for some people in general, becomes a difficult thing to go, I don't understand the point. Why do I have to come into church and sing? I don't understand that. Because our motion, our motion is important. And there's really, I don't know that there is a better way to capture emotion than through song. I mean, you guys have been there before. You ever have like one of those songs comes on the radio and instantly you're back in a place? Like you remember a thing from your youth or, or you remember someone that you were with so you change the radio channel or you know, whatever the case may be. But music has a way of capturing us and evoking emotion in us that very, very few things do. That's why movies have soundtracks. Because music added to what's going on on the screen, it is an intentional manipulation of your emotions. You know that, right? That's intentional. And so the idea that we come together as a body of believers to sing, we are invoking our emotions. I mean, we're invoking the reality that we are amazed and blessed. We are desperate. We can't do this on our own. And we are pouring out our praises to the God who has saved us in spite of ourselves. And you might go, well, I'm down. I just only do it with hymns. I only like hymns. Well, I do too, but they're not your songs. I mean, the goal of it is to literally turn our attention away from ourselves and to put our eyes upon God. And I, I'm a hymns guy too. They are my favorite most, more often than not. But, but I also think sometimes we've been drawn into, I understand there's some modern worship and there's some modern songs that just get overly repetitive and all that stuff. And and we are constantly weeding through the songs that we use and all that kind of stuff. But there tends to be this blanket truth that everyone subscribes to that says, the hymns have doctrine and none of the new songs do. And that's not true. It's not true. When you read the Psalms and you read some of the things that people are pouring out and singing, I can tell you right now, there's, there's truths in those things. 
But the goal is not like, well, I'll worship when it's this song, not with that song. No, Jesus is saying, look, this isn't about a prescribed formula anymore. This is, you're not going back to the temple and only doing it this way anymore. This is about worshiping in spirit from your heart as I gather my people together. So men, women, you have to sing. <sighs> Sorry. But I'm, but I'm calling you to this because I'm telling you right now, the day that you push past that pride barrier that prevents you from lifting your hands, singing with your voice, from meaning the things that you're singing on that screen, I'm telling you right now, your faith and your walk with God will catapult into a whole other dimension. You are missing out on a vital element of the life of the believer when we're not worshiping Jesus. And so here, when we come together, people, we are coming together the continued work of 2,000 years of history to say, God, you are awesome. And we should do that with some emotion and some enthusiasm. Amen? We should sing. But we don't stop at singing. See, you have to, again, it's and. You guys see that, right? It's spirit and truth. So it's not like, I'll take truth, please. No, it's, it's both. It's spirit and truth. What does truth mean? It means genuine reality or informed minds or genuine understanding. So the idea is this. We understand our intellect is engaged. We understand the realities of the gospel, what he's done for us, and our desire is to worship God, but, but not just in song, but in every aspect of our life. And somewhere along the, I don't even know when, but somewhere along the line in American history and in church history in America in particular, we started buying into this line that the pastors are the men of God, they're men of the cloth, they're closer to God, and somehow the average congregant is not, and that is foolishness. Every single person in the body of Christ is a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some do it up here on Sunday morning, and some do it working at a car wash on Monday morning. It's the same. We are just as valuable. We are just as important to the kingdom of God. And I'll tell you right now, we need less preachers and more ministers out there in the world outside of the church is the, quite frankly the reality of this world. And so what you are doing is not just coming here and just invoking worship and singing and invoking only your emotion, but there comes a point where you flip that switch and you turn on now the will and you say, now I am going to worship God with my life. As Romans says in Romans chapter 12, verse one, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, or in other words, knowing the mercy, the gospel, the grace of God, present your bodies, what? A living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. In other words, it means this. Look, when you understand the gospel, when you understand the grace that he's poured out on you, it just makes sense that you would lay down your life for him. If the perfect God would come here and give his life for you, how can it just make sense that we would do that for him in return? This is what this means, in spirit and in truth. Worship, church doesn't just happen in this room. Church happens the moment you guys walk out of this door. Church happens in huddle groups throughout the valley tonight. Church happens tomorrow in work because in everything you do, you're exalting God. If you're an accountant, you're trying to be precise and responsible with the money that you have there that you might be a witness to your employee of the mercies of God in your own life. If you're a teacher, 
You're going, how can I make relationships with these kids in such a way that maybe they come to me in a difficult situation and I get to present the gospel to them in the depths of their despair? If you're a garbage collector, then you're praying for houses as you go along. You see the one with like a mountain of beer and liquor bottles every week. You're like, I gotta pray for that brother. But whatever the case may be, in every single thing we do, we are ministers of the gospel. Our worship does not just exist here. Worship is everything that we do. This is a huge, this is something we hold tightly to here at Heritage that we present our whole lives an act of worship before a God who gave everything for us. Amen? And then lastly, and we'll be done, Heritage is a kingdom-minded church. And this is what I mean by this. Heritage is kingdom-minded. It means, really just to reiterate what we sort of already talked about, that, that our primary goal is not to build up this church. Our primary goal is to build up the kingdom of God in whatever form that may take. And so, what we approach is, yes, we have, and this is important for us to remember as we're going through these sorts of things, because it'd be really easy to try to take all these beliefs, these core values, and say, this is why we are right and everyone else is wrong. Don't do that. Different churches have different missions, but we enjoy fantastic fellowship and brotherhood with people all over the world, and even in this very community. Once a month, I'm getting together here in our valley with a specific group of pastors, First Baptist Church, Medford Naz, Westminster Presbyterian, uh, 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 Kenner Gottsman at um, Rogue Valley Fellowship. Thank you, Kenner. I hope he won't listen. But anyway, um, all of that, like, we have great fellowship. Now, do we agree about everything? No. Do we have the same calling? No. But we're building the same kingdom. And so we can love and learn from and grow from our interactions with other brothers and sisters throughout the kingdom of God. And that keeps us from getting haughty and starting to think, look, we have it all figured out. 2,000 years later, Heritage finally got it. They'll write papers about us for years to come. No, we are part of the kingdom of God. And, and if it builds the kingdom of God by reducing Heritage Christian Fellowship, then we're okay with that. If it builds the kingdom of God by us uh, put it, giving money to other resources and other programs and other ministries and never being able to buy our own building, for example, then we gotta be okay with that. Because our call is to exalt God's name. It's about giving him the glory and giving him the attention. We, we pray, we'd love to have a building one day. We'll talk about some of that on our last week doing this when we start looking forward. There's a lot of things we'd love to do, but all of these things get filtered through the reality. Look, are we exalting God as we make this decision? Are we lifting his name up? Are, are we making a gospel-centered and motivated decision based on this? Are, are we kingdom-minded? Are we, are we exploring and building the global kingdom of God? Or are we just making a name for ourselves? Because if, if you want to see how that goes, go back to Genesis and read about a guy named Nimrod. It doesn't go so well. But man... When God pulls together his people, and when a group of people come together that understand the reality of the gospel, understand how much they need the gospel of Jesus Christ, and how much he has poured out on his people, and praises begin to rise, and then those people leave this place motivated by that same gospel to serve Jesus and to build his kingdom outside the walls, well, Jesus said the very gates of hell will not stand against it. I want to see a movement of God through God's people in this valley. It needs it. Amen? So in the next couple of weeks, we're going to be moving on into the next couple of topics. We'll go into what it means 
to equip and the church's role and how we do this. And then we'll go on to engage the world. And then we'll talk about what all of this means looking forward. There's some important things to talk through that last week, what, what this looks like for heritage in the next seasons ahead in a world that's getting increasingly complicated. But this is a good place to end week one. And maybe you came in this place and you're tired or maybe you came into this place and you were, you were late. I mean, I, this morning started out with a train wreck. Carmine had put in tons of work. He really, knowing what I was doing, he wanted to put a great visual together that would help these ideas really stick. And we came in this morning, we plugged the whole thing and none of them worked. And so it's just all morning long, scramble, 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 all these things. And, and so you go into worship and it's like three songs in before you even get your mind around where you are because you've been dealing with stuff. Maybe that was something similar to you. Or maybe it is just simple pride. You just don't want to sing. You don't want to feel silly. You don't want anybody to hear you. Whatever the case may be, I'm calling you to this. The chief end of every man, woman, and child in this place is to exalt the name of Jesus and to worship him. So let's take a moment and not miss this opportunity this time. Amen. Will you stand with me? God, we give, Lord, our heart and our praise to you now. And I praise God that your Holy Spirit would even infuse these very songs we sing here as we close. That your name would be exalted high and lifted up. And we, Lord, we turn our eyes away from self and we look to the God who has given everything for us. And Lord, we sing to you in response to your gospel. In Jesus' name.